Hi guys, I'm Marie. And I'm Maddie. And we're here recording Lost in the Woods. Welcome back. Another week. Another week. Uh, Maddie and I got out hiking a little bit this week. We almost died. Um, yeah. Yeah, we... (laughs) Especially if you ask my sister who we... Drug along with us. Yeah, we pretty much drug her with us. She's never gone hiking with us and I think... She went hiking once when she was 15, and that's it. And she, just, she wore her Doc Martens. And she wore her Doc Martens. But we drug her along with her, insisting that we would not put her in danger and that she would survive. And, and we <laughs> didn't even get onto the trail before we almost died. So before we even started hiking, we may have been swigging vodka to calm ourselves down. I slept like the two-hour drive there, and I wake up to hear my aunt screaming at my mother, and I look out my window, and the passenger side of the car, <laughs> there's there's no, there's nothing. It's just a cliff. It's just straight down. Yeah, so I thought I could make it on this road. It was a little too narrow, though, and... So there was a snow drift over the road? Yeah, and it was over about half of the road, so initially there was enough space for me to drive on, and it just kept getting skinnier and skinnier, but I could literally see the trailhead, and so I was like, there's no place to park, so I was like, I can probably make it, thinking that I could drive up onto the snow a little bit to stay away from the cliff edge. Turns out the snow was hard as rock ice, I could not drive up it, and it caused my car to slide backwards towards the cliff. Hence, Madison waking up to panicked auntie Dude, screaming in the car. <laughs> when I opened my door, there was, there like, your tires literally were halfway off the cliff. And I was like, uh, Hannah, don't open your door. <laughs> we were able to back the car back down. It was very stressful. And I'm pretty sure my sister's never going to go hiking with us again. But we had a blast. We made her glissade for her first time out there. Yes. Yeah, Madison's not so good at glissading. No, I don't know why. But to be fair, we did not have our glissade equipment with us. We used rain gear that we had in our bags because we carry pack weight. So we carry a tent, we carry rain gear, we carry... Random stuff that we don't actually need. That we never actually use. We carry emergency supplies and food and first aid kit and all of that. So we were not using official gear. We did not have our ice axe for steering or anything like that. It was a little more on the reckless side of glissading. But it was fine. There was nowhere to fall off. It, it we, was da- we went down and we glissaded down into a bowl. It yeah, was fine. It was fine. Okay. We also saw lots of marmots. Screaming marmots. Yeah, have you guys ever seen a marmot scream? It's kind of terrifying. <laughs> it's kind of cute. And it's, it's like, a, like no, it's, watching them scream is cute. No, it's so loud. They open their mouths and it's like, hor- it's horrifying. It's like a whistle. It's Yeah, it sounds like a whistle. So one more quick story before we move on to the podcast here. Sorry, guys. But I have these friends who were hiking one time and they heard this whistle call. So we've talked about our whistles before. You use them when you need help, right? Yes. And um, a marmot weirdly sounds like those whistles that oh, you Oh, yeah, love. weird fact. A marmot does kind of sound like a whistle. So my friends are hiking. They hear this whistle for help, and they're like, is everything okay? Can you hear us? We're here. And it took them a while to realize that it was not a person calling for help, <laughs> that it was just a marmot. It was just a marmot. <laughs> Which, if you've never heard a marmot, or they're rare in your area, they... It's a very loud, distinct shrill. I can understand why somebody would think it was a whistle. And Hannah thought it was a whistle. Yeah. When we were hiking, so, yeah. Okay, 
So today we're going to be bringing you a case that you may have heard of. We're doing it because a big event happened last week that has to do with the case. So we thought it would be kind of fun. We saw it on the news and we were like, oh my gosh, they're removing the bus. I'm upset. We're a little upset about it. You'll find I out I really why. wanted to risk my life <laughs> to go see that bus. Which is why they removed the bus. So we are going to tell you the story today of Chris McCandless and the 142 bus. So last week, the Alaska National Guard used a helicopter to airlift the old rusted bus from the Alaskan wilderness. Many hikers and adventurers have lost their lives or needed to be rescued trying to make their way to this bus. Which is crazy. <laughs> Which is crazy. So Chris McCandless, also known as Alexander Supertramp? Yeah, so tramping is like a type of long-distance hiking. They're called trampers. It's like a thing. So he renamed himself Alexander Supertramp. Like tramping, not like tramping sleeping, but tramping hiking. Chris was born in California. He came from a very good family. His dad worked for NASA and his mom was a secretary at Hughes Aircraft. Yeah, and his dad worked for NASA initially when he was younger. And then I think his mom and dad actually started their own company together. So he's an American hiker and he saw an itinerant lifestyle, which is moving from place to place. Chris excelled academically in school. He was the captain of the cross country team. He encouraged teammates to run against the forces of darkness. So you'll start to see a theme with Chris and the way he thinks about things. So that was one of the ways that he motivated his teammate was to run against the forces of darkness and all the evil in the world and all the hatred as well. He considered running a spiritual experience. I don't find running a spiritual experience. I do not either. But a lot of people do. One interesting fact about Chris as well is he was afraid of the water. He had had a close call or a near drowning accident in his youth and was kind of scared of it. Understandable. So in 1986, he traveled to California to visit his family. This is when he discovered that his father was actually still married to his first wife when him and his sister were born. Yeah, so this would make them the illegitimate family, which they had no idea about. Which I feel like would be a hard thing to... Well, I think so. He's a teenager at this point, and especially because his family was so strict and prominent, and this really felt like a betrayal to him. So he was very passionate and outraged about people going hungry, so this was something that constantly he was talking about. His parents did insist that he needed to have a good base of education if he wanted to do well in life. He did relent to their wishes and attended Emory University in the fall where he majored in history and anthropology. Before doing so, he embarked on a road trip where he would log over 10,000 miles on his journey. That's a lot. That's a lot of miles. Yep. He visited places like Texas, California, Nevada, and his family said he came home with a Jesus beard and a machete under his coat. Sounds about right. So I think this is where he really got like his first taste for roaming, for living out of his car, for not being accountable to anyone or anything. And I think this probably led to decisions that he makes down the road. Sounds like a great life to me. <laughs> So he did seem to isolate himself a bit in college. He didn't join the track team. He didn't get involved in music. He did have a grade point average of 3.7, which was good enough for uh, Pi Beta Kappa, but he had no interest in being a part of any kind of group or social anything. 
Yeah, so he kind of kept to himself and started just doing his own thing at this point. So he graduated from Emory University in 1990 with honors. Yep. His parents did expect him to go to law school. They would realize that they had severely misjudged him and his intentions, though. I feel like that every time parents are trying to force a kid to go to law school, they just rebel extremely. Yeah, yeah. So that's just me. Well, he had also led them to believe that he was planning on going to law school. Oh, okay. So his parents had come down for his graduation, and it was Mother's Day. His parents wanted to buy him a car, but he had refused. He gave his mother flowers and chocolates. This surprised her since he had previously declared that he would not be giving or accepting gifts any longer. Yeah, so basically he just went to his family one day and he was like, I've decided that I will no longer be giving or receiving gifts of any kind. I don't believe in that. So at this point, his parents said their goodbyes, having no idea that they would never see their son again. He had a lot of money left over in his school scholarship fund and had alluded to the fact that he was going to use that for law school. He donated to a cherry dedicated to fighting hunger. That's what I said. Oh. Sound like you said cherry. I said charity. Huh. I definitely said charity. I know. I'm just saying it sounded like you said cherry. I said charity. Well, I know that's what you said. Okay. So it does sound like she says cherry. (laughs) But I definitely said charity. I don't know how it came up like that. We had to go back and listen to it, guys. We're back now. So he donated all of it to a charity dedicated to fighting hunger. Yep. Which is a lot of money to A lot of money. Yep. It sure is. Donate. So he did not tell anyone where he was going. He intentionally left his family to believe that everything was normal. He wanted his family to believe that he was falling in line and coming around to his parents' will. Okay. So that he was like conforming to society mm-hmm. almost. Mm-hmm. This was obviously not true. He had actually written a letter to his sister saying, Once the time is right, with one abrupt, swift action, I'm going to completely knock them out of my life. I'm going to divorce them as my parents. I'll be through with them once and for all, forever. Okay, so I'm guessing he did not like his parents. So he really didn't like the idea that they were not the idyllic family. Yes. So that comes up a little more later too about the disdain that he has for his family. I find this very extreme and aggressive on face value. (laughs) So at this point, he did start introducing himself to people as Alex. Yep. Hence, Alexander Supertramp. So everyone that knows him as Chris McCandless now will never see him again. Yeah. He has now become Alex and does not go back to his previous life. Okay, so he embarked on a road trip in his yellow Datsun through California, Arizona, and South Dakota. On July 6, 1990, Chris entered Lake Mead Recreational Area. A few days later, which by the way, you're not supposed to drive into the area that he drove into. So he's illegally entering a no vehicles allowed area. Cool. Where he's camping out in his car. A few days later, a flash flood had gotten his engine wet and he was unable to get it started again. So he took off the license plate, took what he could carry and headed out on foot. See, if you're going to abandon a car, definitely take the license plates off of it. Yep. (laughs) He decided it would be good to shed more baggage. So he wasn't even very upset about it. He also burnt his money, which at the time was $123. Doesn't get you very far. Nope, but he burnt it. Why? I don't know. I get what he's trying to do. The philosophy side of it, yeah. I totally understand. But 
why burn your money? Why donate all of your money? I know. I know. He started... This is something that he does throughout. He buried some of his belongings so he could come back later and collect them. And he does this a lot. Does he ever come back for anything? Mm-hmm. Okay. On August 10th, 1990, Chris gets a ticket for hitchhiking. Yeah, which is kind of crazy because he's calling himself Alex now. He's trying to basically disappear from everybody that knows him, but he actually gives this police officer his real name and his real address. So in September of 1990, Chris would meet Wayne Westerberg in Montana and they would have an immediate friendship. Yeah, he would work for him at the Grand Combines and he actually headed east to South Dakota to work for Wayne. So he had a really good relationship with this guy. Okay. So Alex was a hard worker and he would do jobs that nobody else wanted to do. Right, like mucking out, cleaning, things that people didn't want to do, killing rodents, things like that. He would take on the jobs that nobody else wanted. So on October 5, 1990, his car was found by rangers and it had a note on it saying, this piece of shit has been abandoned. Whoever can get it out of here can have it. The keys were in the ignition and the car was still full of Chris's belongings, the things that he didn't bury. This is really funny, actually. So it was repaired and put into service as an undercover police car. Yep. (laughs) And they brought out jumper cables, actually, and were able to start it up immediately. So the only reason it wasn't running previously is because it had gotten wet. So if he had waited around for a couple days, he might, it would have been fine, but he killed the battery trying to get it started. And they actually said it's been a really reliable little car for them. (laughs) That's really funny, actually. I know. So his parents did make efforts to find him, and they even hired a private detective. Yeah, I think they're kind of a little panicked, right? I think that getting the hitchhiking ticket in the mail for them made them very concerned because they knew he had a vehicle. They're like, why is he hitchhiking? What is going on? That made them concerned. Because by this point, they have already found they couldn't get a hold of him. And they went to his apartment, and it was empty with a for rent sign in the window. All of his stuff was gone. They were blindsided, basically. Yeah. So Alex had done the job for Wayne for a while. And by November, he was out on the road again. Yep. And in December, Wayne actually received a postcard from Alex who thanked him for everything, for his hospitality. And he wrote, sometimes I wish I hadn't met you, though. Tramping is too easy with all this money. My days were more exciting when I was penniless and had to forge around for my next meal. I've decided that I'm going to live this life for some time to come. The freedom and simple beauty of it is just too good to pass up. On December 3rd, Chris would sneak into Mexico by paddling through the Morales Dam. Yeah, he had bought a canoe in Arizona and paddled to California before slipping into Mexico. I mean, at this point, I don't think he has ID or anything like that on him. So he would have no way to legally get across the border. And he does kind of take on a screw the government attitude at this point in his life as well. So he's not interested in conforming to any of their laws or rules. So he had spent Christmas alone in a cave watching the ocean. So he also wrote of watching the full moon come up at New Year's. And the reason we know this is because... Alex did keep a journal. I think if he hadn't kept a journal, nobody would even be talking about his story because... No one would even know his story. Well, they would know the the end of it, but they wouldn't know anything leading up to that. And I think that 
what leads up to his story is what fascinates and intrigues people about his life. So keep a journal, guys, I guess. I guess you're going to do something crazy. (laughs) On January 11, he almost died when his canoe was capsized. And remember, he is kind of scared of the water. So... So, on January 18th, 1991, Alex gets caught trying to sneak back across the border. Am I surprised? No. What is surprising is that he had a gun on him when he did it. (laughs) Don't we know someone who's banned from Canada because of that? Yes. He was released later that night, minus the gun. So, in entering his journal reads, Can this be the same Alex that set out on July 1990? He wrote, Malnutritioned and the road have taken their toll on my body. Over 25 pounds lost, but his spirit is soaring. Twenty, And he's not, to begin with, he's not a big guy no, at all. he's about 5'8 and about 130 pounds before this trip. So yeah, 25 pounds, that's a lot. That's a big deal. Especially yeah. when you weigh 130 pounds. And you're already, yeah, you're already small to start with, yeah. So he returns to Nevada his abandoned car was gone, <laughs> yep. which I wonder if he was surprised by that. I don't think so. But he did try to hide it like under a tarp. So maybe he was thinking it might still be there, but it's not. It's gone. But he did recover the items that he had buried in the ground at this point. Yep. So on February 3rd, 1991, Chris goes to LA and gets a new ID and a job. He lives on the streets while working at a casino because he needs to save money for his big Alaskan adventure. This is his new plan. Alaska's pretty far away from California, so gonna need some money to get there. Well, I think it's not that he needs money to get there or thinks he needs money for that, but he needs the right gear to take with him. Also, at this point, he stops taking pictures and journaling, and I think that it might have something to do with his camera not working after being buried in the desert. He does also spend some time working at a McDonald's in Arizona, Employees there said he never showered and hated wearing socks. Well, I mean, when you live on the streets, it's kind of hard to shower, and I just feel like he wouldn't wear socks. I don't even like wearing socks. But if I'm at work, I have to wear socks. That would be gross. I can't wear shoes without socks. I prefer flip-flops or sandals. Um, my toes feel like I'm going to get <laughs> stub them on everything. Something's going to attack my toes. In January of 1992, he returned to South Dakota again and he worked for Wayne again yep on January 10th 1992 he meets Ron Franz who actually became a very close friend of his then on February 28th 1992 Chris is living on the streets of San Diego now yep by March 5th 1992 he becomes a hobo in Seattle right so we have limited information on this time that he actually spent because he's not journaling So a lot of it is just where they were able to pick up his trail and where his trail took off again. Sometime between March and April, he goes from being a hobo in Seattle to being in South Dakota. On April 21st, 1992, he arrives at Lear River Hot Springs. He caught a ride with a man named Gaylord Stuckey. He drove him three days to Fairbanks and they arrived on April 25th. Yep, he actually took Alex to the store and he bought him a bag of rice and then dropped him off at the campus because Alex wanted to read up on plants in Alaska. So he actually wanted him to and begged him to call his parents and tell them where he was. Something about nobody knowing where he was really bothered this man. 
which I can totally understand. He did spend a couple days there where he found a used 22 rifle that he purchased. On April 27th, 1992, he wrote to his friend Wayne Westerberg again. Greetings from Fairbanks. This is the last time you shall hear from me, Wayne. I arrived here two days ago. It was very difficult to catch a ride in the Yukon Territory, but I finally got here. Please return all mail I receive to the sender. It might be a very long time before I return south. If this adventure proves fatal and you don't ever hear from me again, I want you to know that you are a great man. I now walk into the wild. Alex. So on April 28, 1992, he hitched his way to Mount McKinley in Denali National Park. A man named Jim Gallion picked him up and he actually tried to persuade him out of being dropped off at the edge of the wilderness, which he was not successful in. But he was like... I don't think this is a good idea looking at what Alex had in his equipment because this man had lived in Alaska his entire life, right? Mm -hmm. So he's looking at what Alex has and he seems very ill-fitted for spending time in Alaska this time of year. He even tried to scare Alex with bear stories, (laughs) which didn't work. But he did manage to give Alex a pair of rubber work boots that he had in his car. They were two sizes too big for Alex but he accepted them. Jim also insisted that he take the lunch his wife had packed him, which was two grilled cheese and tuna sandwiches and a bag of corn chips. Two grilled cheese sandwiches and a tuna fish sandwich? No, two grilled cheese and tuna fish sandwiches. Grilled cheese and tuna fish. That's an interesting combination. That's not that weird. I think that's pretty common. I have never heard of anyone eating that I've definitely never eaten that either, so. Alex did give the man his watch as payment, even though Jim said he didn't want his watch. But Alex was like, I'm just going to throw it away if you don't take it. So he took the watch. And he had taken a picture of Alex before he left. Yep, so he's got his backpack on. He's got his rifle sling over his shoulder. He seems very excited to be walking into the wild. Which we have thought about taking pictures of some people when we're out hiking. Before I know. We... We're like, uh, what's your name and your address and what kind of car do you drive and what's your mother's name so I can notify her when you go missing. So he entered the forest with plans to live off the land. He had scant supplies for an extended stay in the wilderness. So he had his backpack and his rifle. He also had a field guide on plants. He had a small map that he got from a gas station which was more for the roads not for the wilderness and he had a 10 pound bag of rice. A while back, he had been able to survive on a five-pound bag of rice and fish that he caught for an extended period of time. That experience is part of what led him to believe that he could survive in Alaska on similar rations. If I was going to do this and go out into the wilderness and try to live, I don't think I would pick somewhere that has such drastic seasons. He also had no snow boots, not very warm clothes. He had no compass. He said he didn't need to know where he was or what time it was or what day it was. So he found his way to the Stampede Trail. Yeah, and this was an older trail. In 1961, a construction company had been hired to upgrade the trail and make it passable for vehicles. In order to have a place for their workers to sleep during this project, they had actually brought in three old abandoned buses. They built bunks into them. They had fireplaces in them. In 1963, the project was halted, and they hauled out two of the buses, but one was left behind. The road then became impassable. Hence where the bus came from. Hence the bus. 
Okay, so he was forced to cross the Taiklanika River, which, if I'm not wrong, this is where everybody usually gets stopped or dies. injured or dies yes. or needs to be rescued. So, depending on the time of year, this river can be very sketchy to cross. Due to weather, it wasn't very bad this particular year. So, it would have been about thigh deep at the time that Alex made his crossing. But he had no idea that when he would try to cross it again, he would not be able to. So on April 29th, he falls through the ice. Yeah, and he mentions this in his journal, but he does not indicate if he was injured at all, so it doesn't seem like this had any impact on him. Just cold. It'd just be really cold. He wrote in his journal, Magic Bus Day. So he came across this bus. It's green and white, although it has just as much rust as it does color at this point. It's a Fairbanks City Transit bus, and it's bus number 142. The engine is gone. The windows are broken. There's scattered whiskey bottles along the floor. Hunters have actually used this bus since the time of its abandonment for shelter from the weather while hunting. There's a lot of wolf, caribou, moose, bear, all of that in this area. All the good stuff in Alaska. Yeah. So he continued to write in his journal. On May 2nd, he wrote, saw a grizzly. May 4th, shot at but missed some ducks. May 5th, shot and killed a grouse. Still, what does a, what does a grouse look like? I want to know. It kind of looks like a mini turkey. A mini turkey? They yeah. sound so weird. They do sound really weird. We ran across them on our hike yesterday, actually. I didn't see them. I just heard them. Yeah. And I really wanted to see them. Oh, you missed it. They were running across the road when we were driving on the trail. Damn it. Yeah. So May 9th, saw squirrel. So after this, he left the bus in search of something more wild than where he currently was. So his original plan had been to walk about 500 miles to Tidewater. But on May 19th, after going about only 15 miles, he had turned back. Yep. Because his route would have been very difficult at this time of year. Yeah, so springtime is not necessarily the best time to travel across snow in Alaska. It starts to get wet and it starts to get slushy it's harder to walk on he's not really prepared for that i don't think a week later he was back at the bus yeah apparently he decided maybe this area is wild enough (laughs) although locals do not really consider this area very wild it's very close to roads it's close to civilization it's not as rugged as some of the area in alaska i know it's dangerous with the river crossings and such but they don't consider it a very wild area May 22nd, he wrote, a crown fell off one of my molars. Yeah, actually this was found in the bus too. On May 28th, gourmet duck. On June 1st, five squirrel. June 2nd, porcupine, ptarmigan, four squirrels, gray bird. June 3rd, another porcupine, four squirrels, two gray birds, ash bird. June 4th, a third porcupine. Where are all these porcupines coming from? I've never even seen a porcupine. Is this what he saw or what he's No, eating? this is what he's eating. He's killing the whole family off. June 4th, a third porcupine, squirrel, gray bird. June 5th, Canadian goose. On June 9th, though, he writes in his journal, moose, with exclamation marks. So he shot himself a moose, which is crazy. But this actually proves to cause him much despair because he has no experience preserving meat, he writes. On June 14, he writes, Meg, it's already. Smoking appears ineffective. Don't know. Looks like disaster. I now wish I had never shot the moose. 
one of the greatest tragedies of my life. That's so sad. On July 3rd, 1992, he decided that it was time to end his adventure. He packed up his camp and headed east. So on July 5th, his journal notes, Beaver Dam and disaster. He wrote, Rained in, river looks impossible, lonely, scared. So on July 8th, he returns to the bus. On July 14th, he shot at a wolf, but missed. What's funny too is he did have a fishing pole on him, but he doesn't appear to have ever attempted to use it. Maybe the river intimidated him enough that he didn't want to be fishing in it. I don't really know, but I'm surprised that he doesn't fish at all. Yeah. So on July 30th, Alex had written in his journal, Extremely weak, fault of pot seeds. Which they're assuming is potato seeds. He says, Much trouble just to stand, starving, great jeopardy. Yeah, and this was the first entry in his journal that implied that he was in trouble. Because if you think about it, when he got back from trying to cross the river, he's probably thinking, I'll just wait it out until the river's lower. I've had a ton of success hunting and foraging, and I've lost some weight, but I'm still doing good. And now he's back at the bus, and all of a sudden he's in grave danger. So on the 5th of August, Alex wrote, Day 100, exclamation mark, made it, but in weakest condition of life, death looms as a serious threat, too weak to walk out, have literally become trapped in the wild, no game. On day 104, he shot a bear but missed. On day 105, he killed five squirrels and saw a caribou. On day 106, he got a ptarmigan. It's a type of grouse, I think. On day 107, which we think is around August 12th. A lot of it depends on whether or not he's counting his days properly. We have no idea. We have no idea. But he made his last journal entry, which says, beautiful blueberries. So he took a picture, and in this picture, he's waving with one hand and holding up a sign in the other that says, in quotes, I've had a happy life, and thank the Lord, goodbye, and may God bless all. Yeah, and in this picture, which we'll post, his face is very gaunt, and his body is pretty emaciated at this time. So he's looking a little rough, but he is still smiling in the picture. On September 6, 1992, moose hunters came across the bus. There was a makeshift flag and a handwritten note attached to the door. The page was torn from a novel by Nikolai Gogol. It said, Attention possible visitors. SOS, I need your help. I am injured and near death and too weak to hike out of here. I am all alone. This is no joke. In the name of God, please remain to save me. I am out collecting berries close and shall return this evening. Thank you, Chris McCandless, August, question mark. He's come back to Chris McCandless at this point and is basically begging anybody who comes across the bus while he's gone picking berries to not leave him there. So, upon further inspection, the hunters had found him inside of a blue sleeping bag, and it looked as if he'd been dead for a few weeks. Yeah, at the time of his autopsy, he only weighed 67 pounds. So, let that sink in for a minute. That is very, very skinny. So, like I said before, according to his driver's license, he weighed about 133 pounds at the time that he left from college. His official cause of death was labeled as starvation, although there is debate over this. The top popular opinion is that he accidentally poisoned himself. So we'll talk about that in a little bit too. 
One of the windows of the bus had been knocked out to make room for a 15-foot spruce trunk. One end of the log was stuck into the mouth of the barrel stove, so he had pulled a tree in through the window and kind of stuck it into the stove because he was unable to cut wood off of it, I'm assuming. Sounds legit. <sighs> he did have a dull machete in there, but it was just propped by the door, so we're assuming it wasn't... Yeah. He couldn't use that to cut the tree. So his father had given him the blue backpack that he had had, and his mother had sewn him the blue sleeping bag that he would die in. Mm, that's so sad. Okay, so some of the theories. So there's a plant called wild potato root. There's also a plant called wild sweet pea, and they resemble each other very closely. They look very similar. Wild potato root is not poisonous. Wild sweet pea is poisonous. So one of the theories is that he consumed this wild sweet pea thinking it was wild potato root and that caused his death. However, he had been harvesting the wild potato root throughout his entire time there. So some think it's unlikely that he mixed the two plants up. Another thing that people wonder is if he had eaten enough of the potato seeds that it could have had a negative effect on him because he was on a very limited diet, he was doing high physical activity, maybe that could have affected his immune system in some way. So starvation can cause apathy, listlessness, hallucinations, and convulsions, severe muscle pain, increased susceptibility to disease. So if your body is starved for nutrition, it can actually make you more likely to get sick. Which sounds reasonable to me. Yeah, so one of the things I wonder is, could he have contracted a disease that his body was unable to fight off? Yeah, like which led to him sick. starving to death because he couldn't get up to go get himself food. Mm-hmm. The story of Chris McCandless has actually become quite the cautionary tale. So a lot of people think that he was just an immature boy with unrealistic ideals. And they actually call him an unsuccessful poacher and a thief in Alaska. Which he did do those things. So we're not saying that he didn't. And then other people tend to idolize him, which I think from my perspective as an avid hiker and as somebody who loves nature and loves the experience of being out there alone, I can understand that. However, I would never personally go out into the wilderness that unprepared. Even if I wanted the experience of living off the land, I just would need to have a backup or I would need to have proper gear in order to do something like that. My issue is I don't think I could kill anything. (laughs) I would die. You would have to eat the berries, and when the snow came, you'd be screwed. Other people wonder if this was a self-destruction plan. Did he want to die? Did he go there with that intention? And I don't think that that's the case. I don't think that is I really don't think so. His family doesn't seem to think so. It just doesn't make sense. There were actually two cabins within two miles of the bus. However, the cabins had been vandalized that spring and would not have yielded any help to him if he had been able to get there. Some even believe that he may have been responsible for the vandalism, which seems kind of out of character for him, personally. But it, it is very coincidental that those cabins were vandalized, ransacked, all the food was stolen around the same time that he was getting into the area. Also, a ranger cabin that was about six miles away from the bus was also vandalized and had all the food stolen from it. But when I say vandalized, I mean they pulled out all the, the stove, they pulled out the mattress, they made a mess of it, everything was destroyed, basically. So 
I feel like that would be a strange thing for him to do, but there is some discussion on whether or not he might be yeah. responsible for that. The timing is a little suspicious on it. Yeah, a little bit. People also wonder why he didn't start a fire or try to signal for help. But from what I hear, there's not really a lot of traffic through this area. So even if a plane did come, they're not sure it would have been able to see him. Yeah. But people are saying, well, he could have burned like an SOS into the into the ground or something like that. And maybe the risk of starting a wildfire just wasn't worth it to him. I'm not really sure. But he did not do that. I also think that maybe he was too weak by the time he realized he was actually in trouble. That's what I think. Yeah, I I think so too. And I kind of tend to like the starvation theory personally. I know that that can really mess with your psyche. I know that your body can start to shut down and you can struggle to do basic tasks when you're that hungry and you've gone that long without food. So I kind of tend to like that theory. Do I think he could have accidentally poisoned himself? Do I think that he could have eaten seeds that poisoned him sure i just don't know about either of those things and i don't think we'll ever really know yeah so some believe that he could have been suffering from mental illness yeah something like schizophrenia or bipolar and some of his behavior does kind of fit into those categories so i can see why people might jump to that conclusion based on hearing what the people he interacted with throughout his life say about him i don't necessarily get that impression But people have been known in their adulthood to develop schizophrenia quickly and devastatingly and they don't come back from it. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it is a possibility, but to me, I don't get the impression. I don't either. But without actually being able to confirm any of that, now that Alex is dead, Chris is dead, we will never know, I feel like. I do admire the fact that somebody could walk away from their lives in such a way because I feel like I could only do that if I was prepared to do that where he had no intention of preparing himself in any way shape or form he just did it I know it's crazy another thing that people wonder is did he just have that much issue with authority he did say things like fuck their stupid rules about the government and he obviously had some issues with his parents so could he have had just such a distaste for authority that he would do whatever he had to do to not have people tell him what to do. Yeah. So it's believed that he had died on August 18th, which is 19 days before the hunters had discovered his body. 19 days. He held on for so long. That's so close. So he had left some messages behind at the bus. He wrote on a bear skull that was found in the bus. He wrote, all hail the phantom bear, the beast within us all. Alexander Supertramp, May 1992. He also wrote on the bus wall, all hail the dominant primordial beast and Captain Ahab too. He also scratches biography into a plywood covered window. Yeah, so he wrote, two years he walks the earth. No phone, no pool, no pets, no cigarettes. Ultimate freedom. An extremist. An aesthetic voyager whose home is the road escaped from Atlanta thou shall not return cause the west is the best and now after two rambling years comes the final and greatest adventure the climatic battle to kill the false being within and victoriously conclude the spiritual revolution ten days and nights 
of freight trains and hitching brings home the great white north. No longer to be poisoned by civilization, he flees and walks alone upon the land to become lost in the wild. May 1992, Alexander Supertramp. Yeah, I honestly, I think that when he packed up to leave, if he had been able to get across that river, I think that he might have gone on to rejoin society and live a relatively happy life, it sounds like. But that just wasn't in the cards for him. It's hard to say what motivated Chris to lead this type of life that contributed to it ending so shortly. Yeah, I mean, he was, what, 24 at the time of his death? Ah. But that's another reason why I don't feel like he went in there With the intention to die. I don't think so either. He did spend every year hiking with his dad. They used to go hike the Blue Ridge Mountain. And his dad said that Chris seemed like he didn't think the odds applied to him and that he was fearless. So if something was dangerous, he thought, well, that doesn't apply to me. I can accomplish that. And he would want to go do it. His dad would say that he always seemed to overestimate his abilities, but only a little. He said that they were always trying to pull him back from the precipice, which is a a very dramatic statement. So obviously there must have been things that led to this. So one thing that we didn't really talk about too much was his family life in this. So there's a book called Into the Wild by John Krakauer. It's actually a really good book. I've read it. There's also a movie. Yes. And then they made a movie out of the book, which actually I kind of like the movie. I think they did a really good job on it. I've never read the book. They did embellish some things and they did glorify the actions of Chris a little bit and which is probably what led to this following of people that he has but it was it I I liked it I thought it was a good movie I thought it was a good movie too so after this movie came out after it was all said and done Chris's sister Corinne did actually write a book called The Wild Truth and it really goes into the toxic family home life that they had growing up so prior to this there hadn't really been a lot of information out there. Yeah, like about, about why he left. But the fact that he cut his parents off the way that he did, I think mm-hmm. a lot of people couldn't understand that. I think it really confused a lot of people and it kind of made him look like an asshole, I think. And then when you read Corinne's book, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, so maybe that sense. contributed. So If you want to know more about what maybe led to Chris being the way that he was, you can read Corinne's book. You can read John's book. They're both great books. So yeah, we don't know how much of his home life contributed to the young man that he became. But, I mean, maybe this was just the way he was wired. So, for me, I feel like that it's a little bit of both. Yeah, and there's a lot of articles out there. So, I mean, check it out if you guys want to see more. I recommend the movie. I thought it was good. Yeah, no, I definitely recommend read the book, watch the movie. Like, it's a really good story. Yeah, but also keep in mind, yes, maybe he should not have been wandering off into the wilderness prepared the way that he was. We're not saying he made good choices. (laughs) No. But it's it's still an interesting story to us as hikers and backpackers. Mm-hmm. And as people who would love to just walk out the door and have no plan to where we're going, we just wouldn't do that in Alaska. Nah, I'd probably go to like warm, 
warm. That's you would want to go to warmer climate for sure if you're going to survive with down, what you have. I'd probably go if I was just going to go walk. Except for me, if I was going to do something crazy like this, I don't think I would try to live off the land. I think that I would go and more explore cultures and kind of walk and wander, be more of like a wanderer if I was Right, but you'd probably stay in hostels. You'd probably stay with people. Like you wouldn't be necessarily living on the streets of Seattle no, with I'd no probably... identification or sneaking across borders. But yeah, so that's the story of Chris McCandless. I read this story a long time ago, but when I saw the bus being lifted out of the forest, actually Shedler was like, hey, you guys should do an episode of that for your podcast because they're removing the bus. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. We did kind of want to go to the bus, but we would have been smart about it. So yeah, that was the story of Chris McCandless. Thank you for listening. Yes. Tell your friends. Go listen to our other episodes. They're fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, follow us on our social media at Lost in the Wood Podcast, of course. Of course, yeah. And we really appreciate you guys. Thank you, everybody, who took the time to write us more reviews and say nice things about us. We really, really appreciate it. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah, have a good week. Everybody be safe out there. Stay healthy out there. And do something for your mental health because I think it's it's a rough time right now for a lot of people. So do something for you. That's why we went hiking yesterday. We just had to get out. We had to do something for ourselves. So, you know, we recommend that you guys do the same thing. Yeah, but thanks for listening, guys. We really appreciate it. We do. And we'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye, guys. What are you doing? Phoenix. Trying to sneak in. There's door two. Sorry, Mom. Then what are you doing, baby? Hey, Phoenix, do you want to tell our listeners what you think of the quarantine? Okay, what do you think of the quarantine? Well, I don't like it because I don't get to go to fun places. Like where? I miss the gym in my school. You do? Mm-hmm. Even the gym? Yep. Mommy misses the gym too. Because you get to work out. <laughs> yes. That's exactly. really funny. Why is that funny? Because. Okay, tell them say bye. Bye. Have a good quarantine.